Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, October 29th. In today's news, as fires rage, Californians are getting better at evacuating. It's saving lives. Another House Republican retires as Jeff Sessions thinks about trying to win back his old Senate seat in Alabama. And the dead founder of ISIS was hiding out among rivals and enemies in a rebel-held Syrian province. But first, the big idea. An army officer assigned to the White House plans to tell House impeachment investigators later today that he was deeply disturbed by President Trump's demand that Ukraine investigate one of his political rivals and feared it would undermine U.S. national security. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, the top Ukraine expert on the National Security Council, was part of a small group of White House officials assigned to listen in on Trump's July 25th phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. His prepared testimony returns repeatedly to his fears that Trump's manipulation of Ukraine policy to discredit his political rival, Joe Biden, is unethical and undermines American security. Vindman will say that he did not think it was proper for the president to demand that a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen. He was worried about the implication for the U.S. government's support of Ukraine. Vindman is the first White House official to testify who listened in on Trump's controversial call, which was first brought to light by a government whistleblower and triggered this historic impeachment inquiry. His prepared statement bolsters previous sworn testimony by Fiona Hill, his former boss at the National Security Council, and Bill Taylor, the acting ambassador to Ukraine. Vindman will repeatedly insist that he has no partisan bias and says that he's loyal to the Constitution and the country above all. Vindman and his family fled the Soviet Union when he was three years old, and he describes himself as an immigrant and a patriot. Vindman was assigned to the White House in the summer of 2018 after a tour of duty in the Pentagon where he authored the U.S. military's principal strategy for managing competition with a revanchist Russia. Vindman states that Trump's initial call with the new Ukrainian president, made right after Zelensky got elected in April, was really positive and left him feeling good. But within weeks of that initial promise, he grew worried that the policy was being hijacked by partisan politics, specifically Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. Vindman cites a July 10th meeting in which Gordon Sunland, the major Trump donor who got appointed ambassador to the European Union, emphasized that to secure a meeting with Trump, the Ukrainians would need to, quote, deliver investigations into the 2016 election, the Bidens, and Burisma. That's the Ukrainian natural gas company that Hunter Biden sat on the board of. Following the briefing, Vindman will testify that he reported his concerns to the National Security Council's top lawyer, John Eisenberg. Vindman's statement notes that, Investigating the Bidens and Burisma would undermine bipartisan support in Congress for Ukraine, which he says is one of Vladimir Putin's top goals. Vindman's most direct contact with Trump came in the form of preparing documents for the president to sign regarding Ukraine. At the direction of his superiors at the NSC, including John Bolton, then the national security advisor, Vindman drafted a memorandum in mid-August that sought to restart $391 million in security aid that Trump was withholding from Ukraine but the president refused to sign it. Vindman also drafted a letter in May congratulating Zelensky on his inauguration. Once again, Trump refused to sign it. This testimony comes as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has scheduled a formal vote for this Thursday to authorize the impeachment inquiry. 
This will force lawmakers to go on the record in support or opposition of the investigation, and it will dictate the rules for its next phase. Pelosi says the vote will affirm the existing probe, now in its sixth week, and establish which hearings will be open and how the transcripts from witnesses who have already testified in closed sessions will be released. Pelosi says the vote will also grant due process to the president and his attorney, countering a repeated criticism by Trump that he's being treated unfairly. Word of the vote came as the investigation hit a new roadblock, with former Deputy National Security Advisor Charlie Kupperman failing to show up for a scheduled deposition yesterday. Kupperman has asked a federal judge to referee the constitutional dispute between the House and the White House over whether he should testify. But instead of waiting for courts to resolve that standoff, Democrats are pivoting to a new strategy and seeking to bring in lower-ranking government officials they hope can corroborate previous testimony alleging a quid pro quo. Several of them, from the State Department to the Energy Department, received summonses yesterday. And in a victory for investigators, an attorney for the White House's current senior director for Europe and Russia, Tim Morrison, who's Vindman's boss, said last night that her client will testify if he gets a subpoena. Such a subpoena will surely be forthcoming. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, as fire blazed just eight miles away from Sutter Santa Rosa Regional Hospital, its chief executive, Mike Purvis, received a phone call from the Sonoma County Sheriff's Office and Cal Fire, the state's fire agency. The hospital was officially being ordered to evacuate. Within minutes of that call, his staff was in motion. They went into an incident command center and an empty conference room and started calling other hospitals to find a place for every patient. 86 patients were moved, many within a few hours, with ambulances rapidly shuttling the majority of patients and a few helicopters transporting the most critical cases. Twelve hours later, Sutter was empty. By Sunday night, the only noise came from medical equipment in empty rooms. As the nation's most populous state adjusts to what could be years of record wildfires, cities, businesses, and residents are acclimating to a new punishing regimen that will reshape daily life in California. Cities are using emergency powers to send mobile alerts to all residents. Authorities are giving more time to families and businesses to leave danger zones, which have expanded in size. And residents are quicker to trust the orders to evacuate. The new evacuation strategies are a sign of how California, strung between the dueling risks of fires and rolling power outages, is adapting to a new reality that experts attribute to climate change. Memories of the fires in Sonoma County a mere two years ago, which claimed 22 lives, are still fresh in that area, which saw an exodus of 200,000 residents over the weekend. It's too early to tell whether the current blazes will be as deadly as two years ago, but authorities attribute the lack of deaths so far to the way Californians are adapting. Number two, the top Republican on the very powerful House Energy and Commerce Committee announced yesterday that he will not seek re-election next year. It's a big sign of how pessimistic GOP lawmakers are about retaking the majority in the 2020 elections. Congressman Greg Walden, a Republican from Oregon, served as chairman of the powerful panel for the first two years of Trump's presidency. Walden is now the 22nd House Republican to retire, resign, or seek another office since Congress convened in January. Only seven Democrats have retired or resigned in that time. The 62-year-old could have served as the committee's top Republican through 2022 under party rules, but he's opting instead to relinquish a chance to again wield the powerful gavel. Walden has shown occasional discomfort with some of Trump's policies. 
He voted with Democrats this year to cancel Trump's border emergency declaration and to end the government shutdown that stretched into January. But he has strongly defended Trump amid the pending impeachment probe. His eastern Oregon district is heavily Republican, voting for Trump by 19 points in 2016. And remember Jeff Sessions? The former attorney general has kept his head down since Trump fired him right after the midterms last November. But behind the scenes, he continues to seriously consider a bid for his old U.S. Senate seat. He's been meeting with consultants, retired senators, and allies in recent weeks to plot out a potential campaign. This would likely infuriate Trump, who attacked Sessions in public dozens of times for recusing himself from Bob Mueller's Russia probe and occasionally still complains about the former attorney general. Sessions, who's 72, has joked in recent weeks that he's glad he was never shot by the president. And he's said he'll continue to offer support for Trump if he chooses to run. A close Sessions ally says that he hasn't made a final decision, but he's leaning towards it. If he runs, Sessions would join a crowded field of Republicans seeking to face Senator Doug Jones, the Democrat who defeated Roy Moore in the 2017 special election to replace Sessions. Moore is running again. Also running, former Auburn University football coach Tommy Tuberville, current Congressman Bradley Byrne, and the Alabama Secretary of State. There's a real chance that if Sessions runs, he could lose in the primary. Number three, when U.S. forces found Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the founder of the Islamic State militant group, he was not in some forgotten border town or remote patch of desert. He was in Syria's Idlib province, a place where Baghdadi surely knew he was surrounded by enemies and eyes. The province, a major battlefield in Syria's ongoing civil war, is dominated by an Islamist militant movement that's actually hostile to ISIS. In the skies, Syrian and Russian warplanes are ever-present, carrying out bombing raids to help the government of Bashar al-Assad recapture Idlib, Syria's last rebel-held bastion. Observation posts manned by Turkish soldiers dot the province. Three million people live there, a place slightly larger than Delaware and nearly impossible to escape. It's unclear how long Baghdadi has been in Idlib or what he was doing there. But the province where he died, with its refugee camps, its front lines, and its unshakable sense of dread, stands as a stark reminder of the misery and threats still radiating from Syria. Western intelligence agencies are nervously monitoring the fighting in Idlib, which has become a proving ground for a new generation of extremists in a war that has already bred thousands of hardened militants. Since late April, the Syrian government's offensive to retake the territory has killed or injured more than a thousand civilians. More than 500,000 have fled the fighting in southern Idlib and neighboring Hama province. Syrian and Russian warplanes have been bombing hospitals and schools. Pentagon officials indicate that more operations targeting ISIS are likely now that Baghdadi is gone. Two men were captured during the raid this weekend who could provide intelligence about the group. Baghdadi's remains, which were tested to confirm his identity, were buried at sea within 24 hours of his death in accordance with Muslim custom. Trump drew attention during his announcement on Sunday by disclosing that a military dog was injured in the raid to get Baghdadi. He fed the intrigue yesterday by posting a picture of that animal on Twitter. The dog accompanies elite members of Delta Force and the Army's 75th Ranger Regiment. But the Pentagon is keeping most details about the covert canine, including its name and background, on a tight leash. Three U.S. officials say the dog's identity is classified because of its affiliation with a classified unit. They say releasing the name runs the risk of identifying the service members to which it was assigned. Pentagon sources tell us that the dog is a male Belgian Malinois, 
that it is a common breed in special ops, prized for its intelligence, athleticism, and ferocity when required. The dog's participation in the operation adds a new hero to military lore. It follows in the paw prints of Cairo. That was the name of the dog he participated in the 2011 raid by Navy SEALs that killed Osama bin Laden. But dogs have served in the military for decades. And while the dog in the latest raid was wounded, it will not be eligible for a Purple Heart or Valor Medal. The U.S. military once recognized canines for such exceptional service, but suspended the practice amid complaints that it diminished the service of humans. Other countries, such as Britain, still give out awards to their dogs for valor. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, October 29th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.